Thank you. Well, if you take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Isaiah, and uh, we'll be turning to the 19th chapter of Isaiah. I will read the whole chapter, even though we're going to focus mainly from verses 17 onwards. So when you're ready, please, please follow along. The burden of Egypt. Behold, the Lord rideth upon a swift cloud and shall come into Egypt. And the idols of Egypt shall be moved at the presence, at his presence. And the heart of Egypt shall melt in the midst of it. And I will set the Egyptians against the Egyptians. And they shall fight every one against his brother and every one against his neighbor, city against city, and kingdom against kingdom. And the spirit of Egypt shall fall in the midst thereof, and I will destroy the counsel thereof, and they shall seek to the idols, and to the charmers, and to them that have familiar spirits, and to the wizards. And the Egyptians will I give over, into the hands of a cruel Lord, and a fierce king shall rule over them, saith the Lord, the Lord of hosts. And the waters shall fail from the sea, and the rivers shall be wasted and dried up. And they shall turn the rivers far away, and the brook of the def of defense shall be emptied and dried up. The reeds and the flags shall wither, and the paper reeds by the brook, by the mouth of the brook, and every thing sown by the brook shall wither and be driven away and be no more. The fishers also shall mourn, and all they that cast angle into the brook shall lament, and they shall spread nets upon the water shall languish. Moreover, they that work in the fine flax and they that weave networks shall be confounded, and they shall be broken in the purposes thereof, all that makes sluices and ponds for fish. Surely the prince of Zion, Zoan are fools, and the counsel of the wise counselors of Pharaoh is become brutish. How say ye unto Pharaoh, I am the son of the wise, the son of ancient kings, where are they? Where are thy wise men? And let them tell thee now, and let them know what the Lord of hosts has purposed upon Egypt. The princes of Zoan are become fools. The princes of Nephon are deceived. They have also seduced Egypt, even they that are the stay of the tribes thereof. The Lord had mingled a perverse spirit in the midst thereof, and they have caused Egypt to err in every work thereof, as a drunken man staggers in his vomit. Neither shall there be any work for e any, neither shall there be any work for Egypt, which the head or the tail 
branch or rush may do. In, in that day shall Egypt be like unto women, and it shall be afraid and fear because of the shaking of the head and the hand of the Lord of hosts, which he shaketh over it. And the land of Judah shall be a terror unto Egypt. Every one that maketh mention thereof shall be afraid in himself because of the coming of the Lord of hosts, which he hath determined against it. In that day shall five cities in the land of Egypt speak the language of Canaan and swear to the Lord of hosts. One shall be called the city of destruction. In that day shall there be an altar to the Lord in the midst of the land of Egypt and the pillar at the border thereof to the Lord. And it shall be for a sign and for a witness unto the Lord of hosts in the land of Egypt. For they shall cry unto the Lord because of the oppression. And he shall send them a savior and a great one. And he shall deliver them. And the Lord shall be known to Egypt. And the Egyptians shall know the Lord in that day. And shall do sacrifice and obli obli obligation. Yea, they shall vow vows unto the Lord and perform it. And the Lord shall smite Egypt. He shall smite and heal it, and they shall return even to the Lord, and he shall entreat of them and shall heal them. In that day shall there be a highway out of Egypt to Assyria, and the Assyrians shall come into Egypt, and the Egyptians into Assyria, and the Egyptians shall serve with the Assyrian. In that day shall Israel be a third with Egypt. And with the Assyrian, even a blessing in the midst of the land, whom the Lord of hosts shall bless, saying, Blessed be Egypt, my people, and Assyria, the work of my hands, and Israel, mine heritage. Father, we pray that your word may speak to us, Lord, that we may see exactly what it is that you have for us in this passage and Lord, that we may be humble enough to seek that your spirit would conform and mold us through it. In Jesus' name, amen. See, the book of Isaiah is split into different parts. We often hear the first part of, of Isaiah preached through. We often hear the latter part, but these, these middle parts of, of the book of Isaiah can sometimes be quite difficult. You see, in the, in the first couple of chapters, chapter 1 through to 12, we see that God exhorts, He condemns, He judges, and He pronounces a warning against His own people, against Judah. And then, after He's done that, He, from chapter 13 through to chapter 23, goes on and then speaks out the condemnation against all the surrounding cities round and about Jerusalem and, 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 and Israel. And these, these, these condemnations can sound quite harsh when we first hear them, but we need to remember, first and foremost, whenever God condemns or whenever God speaks out against the people, He's first and foremost reminding us, fallen, fallen, fallen are the people of this world and they are in desperate need 
of a savior. You know, and we kind of see a climax, especially as we start off with these nations round about. And it comes up to Egypt. Egypt, which is this nation that has historically been viewed in the Bible as that place of bondage of God's people. The place where God's people always went and got entangled in the world. You know, it starts all the way back in Genesis 12 when Abraham receives the call of the Lord and he progresses on towards the promised land. And we see in that chapter that he gets there and before you know it, he travels south to Egypt and find himself in Egypt and in all sorts of troubles as he eventually lied to the king of the, the king of Egypt, Pharaoh, about Sarah, his wife being his sister, and almost lose his wife. But by God's grace, he in, intervened and restores that whole situation. So from that day forward, we see Israel, uh, we see Egypt as this place of bondage. And as you heard those first couple of verses, we read through it. We can see that that this place, Egypt, was a place that was reckoned to be most prominent among the nations for their sin and idolatry. I mean, the Egyptians had almost every god you could imagine under the face of the earth. They worshipped Re, they worshipped Ammon, Atom, Osiris, Isis, Horus, Putah, to name just but a few. You could go on to the sacred birds and the sacred crocodiles and every other thing that they worshipped. Everything that 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 resembled anything of significance, the Egyptians would turn into a god as men naturally suppress the truth of God that has been written on men's heart and seek to find their own way to God. And this is what we see in this, but God is pronouncing a judgment upon upon Egypt in this passage that we've read. Just to 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 elevate and, and remind you of the sins that was prevalent among them. Look look again at, at verses 1 through to 3. It says there, The burden of Egypt, behold, the Lord rideth upon a swift cloud, and shall come into Egypt, and the idols of Egypt shall be moved at the presence of the, or, and, and the heart of the Egyptians shall melt in the midst of it. You see, nobody, nobody can stand in the presence of the Lord when they are committing all of these types of idolatry. These people were becoming a, a picture of God's judgment over sinners. They were perhaps one of these nations that most vividly demonstrated to us what it was to rebel against the eternal God. But as we go on to the, the latter parts of this chapter, when you get to verse 24... Of, of this chapter, it says there, In that day shall Israel be a third with Egypt, and with the Assyrian, even a blessing in the midst of the land, whom the Lord of hosts shall bless, saying, Blessed be Egypt, my people. Can you imagine that? In the midst of all this, all of this horror that we see, we see that God yet can still bless and call the people to himself. Now, the first thing I want to remind us from this passage, that this is a wonderful passage with so many promises for us in a missionary endeavor. You know, many people will try and put this, this passage somewhere in history, saying at that point the people turned to the Lord, or this point they turned to the Lord. But I think 
if we look at history, we can see that there has not yet been a time when the Assyrians and, and the Egyptians and the Israelites together worship our great God. And yet this is something that is promised in Scripture. So this is a wonderful promise for us to reflect on. And so in the midst of this reality of the greatest sinners that have been displayed to us, we see God is a God who extends His grace even unto the worst of sinners. And my dear brothers and sisters, is that not to some extent each and every one of us? Were we not the worst of sinners prior to Christ reaching into our lives and changing us? You see, God's judgment, God's rebuke, often leads us to that place where we recognize, I am in need of a Savior. You know, that's the whole purpose of the law, to show us that we're not good enough. We cannot achieve the things that would make us right with God. It is impossible. Israel had hundreds of years of trying to perfect a way to please God through works, and it is impossible. All of the world seek to please God through their works. That's why we have so many different religions. But no one can please God because we are sinners. We are people who have fallen short of the glory of God and therefore has placed ourselves in a place where we need the judgment of God. But God in His mercy made a way for sinners like us to come to Him. You know, Abraham... Abraham is, is a wonderful example. We're studying him in the lunchtime Bible study at, at the moment. And next week we'll be in chapter 15. But you can remember Abraham. It, it's easy to look at him and think, oh, he did so many things so right. But actually, when you really study his life, you see he actually did so many things so wrong. But yet God was merciful and gracious to him. You know, after his initial uh, experiences with the Lord, gets to chapter 15 after he's walked a long road with the Lord. He's, he's, he's had his wife back out of Egypt. He was made rich while he was in Egypt. He uh, had saved his, his, his nephew Lot from a whole platitude of kings that attacked Sodom and Gomorrah. And yet in, the, in chapter 15, the Lord speaks to him and promises to him that he will inherit this land and they, that they will be, he's multi, he will have a multitude of descendants. And look what, well, look what happens in, in, in chapter 15, verse 7. It says there, And he said unto him, I am the Lord that brought thee out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give thee this land to inherit. And he said to the Lord God, Wherewith, Whereby shall I know that I shall inherit it? You know, God had spoken. He had seen time and time again that the Lord was, 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 was true to his word. When God said something, it will come to pass. And here God tells him clearly that this will happen. And he doubts the Lord and he said, how will I know that this will happen? And the Lord answers him and he said unto him, take me a heifer of three years old and a she-goat of three years old and a ram of three years old and a turtle dove and a young pigeon. And he took unto him, all these and divided them in the midst and laid each piece, each piece against one another, but the birds he divided not. And when the fowls came down unto the carcasses, Abraham drove them away. And when the sun was going down, 
A deep sleep fell upon Abraham, and lo, a horror of great darkness fell upon him. And he said unto Abraham, Know for surely that thy seed shall be strangers in a land that is not theirs, and shall serve them, and they shall afflict them for four hundred years. So partly it is a result of, of Abraham's doubting the Lord that his people, his descendants, were sent into this land of bondage. So that ultimately the Lord can be the one who calls his own children out of Egypt. And so it's from this point onwards that Egypt becomes this picture, a picture of, of, of God's enemies, of, of the world, for lack of a better word, out of which God will take his own children. The place where each of us, when we have come to know the Lord, have been taken from, out of the world into the presence of Lord. You know, the, the Bible profess even of Jesus Christ that the Lord said, out of Egypt I will take my son. And so that picture is quite vivid. But look, look at verse 19. And this is, this is why it is so significant. It says in verse 19 of this chapter, In that day shall there be an altar to the Lord in the midst of the land of Egypt, and a pillar at the border thereof to the Lord. You know, so in the midst of Egypt, the Lord declares that he will place a witness to, of, of himself, an altar, a place where God can be worshipped and we, where people will be directed to the Lord himself. Uh, a pillar as well. You remember the story of the pillar when, when Jacob left. Uh, you know, he was afraid of his brother. His brother was threatening murder against him. And he traveled to Laban, to his mother's kindred. And, 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 and on his way there at Bethel, he met the Lord. For the first time, the Lord appeared to him and spoke to him. And in Bethel, which means the house of God, he struck up a pillar so that it was a witness that here I met with God. You know, and for anyone who's ever brought out of Egypt, it is necessary to come to that place where you have met with God. You know, and so sometimes I wonder, is there a pillar in your life that points you back to Christ? You know, Egypt, Egypt experienced God's grace. We see his grace to, to, to Egypt by setting up this pillar and this altar that people may know that there is a God. So it's God's grace, even in the midst of Egypt, even in the midst of this world. And my dear brothers and sisters, we need to remember something that if you and me, if we know the Lord, then ultimately we are already an altar and the pillar in the midst of Egypt. You know, we here in the middle of Oxford, or wherever the Lord has you, you know, in your family, we, we often have people asking, you know, pray for my family, that my family is saved. You know, do you know that you are a pillar, an altar in the midst of your family? Pointing people in Egypt to the fact that there is a king who will save you if you turn to him through the power of Jesus Christ, the one who came to die for sinners. So the first thing we see in that passage. That God is a God of grace. In the midst of Egypt. He will make a way for sinners. To come to him. But the second thing we see there. Is that God is also. A God of grace. In sending us a savior. 
And we know that that Savior is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ himself. But look here, at 700 years before Jesus were to come into the world, the, the, the prophet writes this prophecy down. And in verse 16, he says, In that day shall Egypt be like unto women, and it shall be afraid and fear because of the shaking of the hand of the Lord of hosts which he shaketh over it. And the land of Judah shall be a terror unto Egypt. Even one that makes mention thereof shall be afraid in himself because of the counsel of the Lord of hosts, which he had determined against it. In that day shall five cities in the land of Egypt speak the language of Canaan and swear to the Lord of hosts. One shall be called the city of destruction. In that day shall there be an altar to the Lord in the midst of the land of Egypt and a pillar at the border thereof to the Lord. And it shall be for a sign and for a witness unto the Lord of hosts of the lands of Egypt. For they shall cry unto the Lord because of the oppression and he shall send them a savior and a great one and he shall deliver them. He will send them a, a, a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. That word there, the word uh, that, that, that they used for, for a mighty one is, is a military term. I thought I wrote down the Hebrew word. I didn't. So I'm not even going to try to pretend that I can remember it. But the word itself has, has, has a military, military title to it. So it's, it's that he will send a great captain. It's one who will deliver and defend. He will be our defender. You see, without Jesus Christ, there's no way for us to turn to God. There's no way for us to come to Him. The wrath of God is too fierce. It's too pure. It's too terrifying for those who have sinned and rebelled against the eternal God. But His mercy and grace is so sufficient. It's so magnificent that in His Son, justice and mercy meets together. And the way is made for sinners who find themselves in Egypt to behold the altar, to behold the pillar, but also to recognize that the Savior was sent for them. And in the midst of Egypt, you find the Savior. This Savior coming into the world that's not only a defender and a Savior, but also a deliverer. And isn't it amazing what the Bible speaks to us of deliverance that, that is there in Christ Jesus. Think, for example, of Psalm 91, which says to us, He that dwells in the secret place of the Most High shall abide, abide under the shadow of the Almighty. Isn't that amazing to think that we, as people who've been redeemed by Christ Jesus, will be in the midst of the shadow of the Almighty. He is the one that is over us. We don't need to fear anything. God is sufficient. God is able to uphold us. The psalm continues and say, I will say to the Lord, He is my refuge and my fortress. My God, in Him I will trust. Surely He shall deliver thee from the snare of the fowler and from the noisome pestilence. He shall cover thee with the feathers and under His wings shall thou trust. His truth shall be thy shield and buckler. Thou shalt not be afraid for the terror by night, 
nor for the arrow that fears by, by day, nor for the pestilence that waketh in the darkness, nor for the destructions that wasted at noonday. A thousand shall fall at thy side, and ten thousand at thy right hand, but it shall not come nigh thee. You see, God is the one that sustains his people. He is the one that makes a way for those who find themselves in the midst of Egypt, not only to come to Christ, but be to be sustained, protected, and delivered from all the onslaughts of the devil and this world. So we see that God is a God whose grace is displayed in showing us ways to get to him in the midst of the difficulty that we're in, but ultimately through Jesus Christ, who is the, of Egypt. They now speak the language of Canaan because God has dealt with them. And my, my question to us tonight, my dear brothers and sisters, is has God dealt with you? You know, not, not only did he put you as a pillar in the place that you are, but before you can be a pillar, you need to be certain that God has dealt for you. Has your language changed? Has your desires changed? Has your aims in life changed? Have they come in line with the aims of Christ? You know, we are reminded time and time again from this pulpit that the only way we will achieve that change is if we sincerely come to Christ and understand from His Word, His will for our lives. You see, God, God has shown us a way. So God has given us certainty that we may know how we should live. He has made a way for us to understand what is pleasing to Him. And I think one of the biggest changes we see, the biggest language change that happens in the life of a believer is that you start to desire to have the language of God, which you get from His Word itself. Are you saturated with the Word of God? You know, there's, there's, there's some brethren in our church here who I just love talking to because they just pour scripture out when you talk to them. One sentence after the next. I sometimes wonder, how do you remember it all? And I know how they remember it all. They rem rem remember it all because they are consistently in this word, having their language being changed. So have you gotten to that place where your language is being changed? Or are you content? to continue with the language of this world. If you're continuing with the language of this world, my dear brothers and sisters, I would say to you that perhaps you need to turn to Jesus and say, Lord, what have you done in my life? Because if we do not have a desire for His Word, a desire to be in His presence, a desire of more of Him, then what do you want? You know, as I, I, I had... A couple of weeks ago, I had a discussion with a young man who professed to be a Christian, didn't, doesn't come to church. He, you know, I tried to challenge him on, on, on these things. I tried to encourage him to read the Bible. And he said to me one day, he said to me, Tian, I just find the Bible really boring. And I, I, I kind of tried to understand where, where he was coming from. And I said to him, what, what do you, what do you mean by, by boring? And he said, well, I, when I read it, I just, I just struggle to understand it. I struggle to really relate it to my own life. And I went on and I said to him, well, what about prayer? Do you find you've got enough time to pray? 
And he said, well, maybe, maybe later in my life I'll start doing those things more. You know, brothers and sisters, if we have no desire to spend time with God in His Word and prayer now, then I want to ask you, why do you even want to go to heaven? You know, because in heaven it will be all about Him. There's no time to say, you know, I'm just going to step out a little bit now. I've had a little bit enough. You know, I can't spend another half an hour in Scripture. Quick, you know, I need a bit of a break. It's too full on. No. Jesus is everything to us. Yes. And if we don't desire to be in His Word now and to be in His presence now, then what makes us think we'll delight to be in His presence on that final day? Oh, brothers and sisters, I pray you would not be one of those who beg that stones will fall upon you to hide you from His presence. I pray that I wouldn't be one of those. By God's grace alone can we stand in His presence. And it starts by God changing our language, changing the way we are so that we may honor Him in all that we do. Look at, look at how the Old Testament speaks of this, this change in Zephaniah chapter 3. It says, For then will I turn the people into a pure language that they may all call upon the name of the Lord to serve Him with one consent from beyond the reverence of Ephrata, my, my supply, and even the daughter of my dispersed shall bring mine offering. In that day shall thou not be ashamed for all thy doings, wherein thou hast transgressed against me. For then will I take away out of thy midst of, of thee them that rejoice in thy pride, and thou shalt no more be haughty because of my holy mountain. You see, God God will take away our pride. He will take away all of the things that are an affront to Him as He makes us more like Christ every day. And He does that by changing our language, changing who we are. The fourth thing we see in this, this passage is that God's grace, God's grace sets people like us to kingdom work. You see, before God dealt with us, I'm sure we all had ambitions, we all had desires, and often God uses those desires and ambitions. But has God made your desires and ambitions now His own, that you would start working for Him? Look at verse 21. Says they, and the Lord shall be known to Egypt, and the Egyptians shall know the Lord in that day, and shall do sacrifice and oblation. Yea, they shall vow vows unto the Lord and perform. You see, now the Lord has not only changed our language, but He's given us the ability to follow through with what we say we want to do for Him, because it's no longer our work. But His work. My dear brethren, when Christians or professing Christians struggle to do the will of the Lord, it's because they struggle because they're doing their own works and thinking that they're doing the works of the Lord. No, we need to be doing God's work. In, in, you know, th think of the Apostle Paul. You know, he's just, just an amazing, amazing individual, isn't it? 
He, 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 he set out to destroy the church of Christ. And you remember when, when, when the Lord changed his heart, when the Lord changed his, his language, he was, he was blinded and he was taken, led by his friends. And, and God spoke to Ananias and said, go speak to, go speak to this man. And he said, no, Lord, I can't do that. He's, he's, he's destroying the church. You know, Ananias was afraid for his own life, I think. But the Lord said, go speak to him for I've shown him how much he must suffer for my name. You know, I sometimes wonder, oh, oh yes, brothers and sisters, we, we, we pray for blessing. We expect that the Lord will work mightily among us. Our pastor this morning reminded us that we should ex be expectant upon Lord, that He will do great things among us. But you know, I, some, I sometimes think, think of, think of Jeremiah, you know? Think of this prophet, right? Imagine God comes to you and say to me, my son, my daughter, this is the ministry I have for you. You're going to minister for 40 odd years and nobody's going to repent. You're going to be stuck in a pit and you're going to suffer time and time again. And nobody's going to repent. You're actually going to be so broken for your nation that you're going to want to pray for them and plead with me that you save them. But I'll say to you, do not pray for them because I am not going to listen. My condemnation is going to come upon them. My patience is up. Who of us will say, yes, Lord, send me? You know, I, I'd be afraid. But God in His mercy, thankfully by His grace, we are now in the time of grace. Oh, brothers... And sisters, think of, think of Jeremiah. He's, he's probably thinking, do you know what you have? You're indwelled with the Spirit of God. He's enabling, strengthening, leading you every day. Oh, brothers and sisters, we have so much. God sets us to kingdom work. Look at what it says there in verse 21. They vowed their vows and they performed them. Brothers and sisters, we are for... You know, we are in the generation where we not only need to vow vows and things like that and hope that it will be achieved. In Christ Jesus, all of our things are yes and amen. Is that not what the word declares? That's the promise and the hope that we have. Paul, Paul, in all that he did, he said, you know, when those, when those false apostles accused him and tried to lead people astray in 2 Corinthians, he said to them, you know, look, look what I suffered for Christ. Of the Jews five times received I forty stripes save one. Thrice was I beaten with rods. Once was I stoned. Thrice I suffered shipwrecked. At night and day I have been in the deep, in journeys often, in peril in the waters, in peril of robbers, in peril by mine own countrymen, in peril by the heathen, in paddle in the city, in paddle in the wilderness, in paddle at sea, in paddle amongst false brethren, in weariness and painfulness, in watching often, in hunger and thirst, in fasting often, in cold and darkness. And I said above all this, it's my great concern for the church of Christ. Oh, brethren, I think Leonard Ravenhill used to say, uh, he used to say, these days, the church is connected with prosperity and plenty and all these things. In the old days, it was suffering and, 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 and sacrifice unto Christ. Are we willing 
to be marked for Christ in just generation? Or are we too entertained with the comforts and joys that Egypt presents to us? Remember, my brethren, we need to be people who are altered and the pillar in the midst of this place that we find ourselves. The only way that that can be a reality for any of us is by what it says here in verse 20. Read verse 20 with me again. And it shall be a sign and for witness unto the Lord of hosts in the land of Egypt. For they shall cry unto the Lord because of oppression. You see, when God's grace comes effectually into the heart of men, it teaches men to pray. And that is where our strength lies. It brings men and women to their knees, for they shall cry unto the Lord. Think of this for a moment, brethren. What, what did the, the, the gospel of Luke teach us about prayer? You know, in Luke chapter 11, the disciples there, Jesus had gone away to pray. And when he came back, they were clearly, clearly so moved by the prayer that they said, that they pleaded and say, Lord, teach us to pray. You know, when's the last time you cried out to the Lord and said, Lord, teach me to pray. Teach me to intercede for my brethren. Teach me to intercede for my family. Teach me to hold on to your throne of grace when everything seems to be going crazy in my life. Lord, teach us to pray. That's what we should cry, should cry out. You know, I've heard it said before that you will, if, if you want to learn something that is significant, you will go to the one that you know that is best at that, at that thing. If I want to learn to, to paint my house, I might ask Paddy or Alfonso to, 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 to show me. If I need some plumbing done, I would ask Joff because I've seen him, you know, with, with our previous toilet block. He had some good experience there, but we would ask somebody who knows and we can see what they're doing. And this is the most significant thing that the apostles ever saw of Jesus. Midst of all the miracles, all of those things that they could have asked, this is the one thing that the scriptures record us saying, teach us to pray. You know, how often do we do that? How often do we go to the Lord and ask Him to teach us to pray? So brothers and sisters, in the midst of this passage, in the midst of all these rebuke that's the rebukes that we see the Lord gives out to these nations round about Jerusalem, He reminds us that grace is never far off. Grace avails for you. It's, it, it's come to us in the Lord Jesus Christ, but even here we see that these nations have this wonderful promise. And so brothers and sisters, you and me should be people who are willing to run out of this tent at any moment to go and tell people of this amazing grace that we have experienced in the Lord Jesus Christ because He has made us an altar in the pillar in the midst of Egypt. And let us never forget that. Let us pray. Father, Thank you, God, that you are so merciful, so kind, so good. Oh, Lord, our prayer is that you would show us more 
of your kindness, more of your grace and goodness, Lord. May we see your majesty in all these things so, so that, Father, we can do nothing but fall on our knees and say, Lord, stay your hand from us. It's too much for us. Please help us and strengthen us so that we can be your witnesses in the midst of a wicked generation. Oh Lord, we are reminded here again tonight as we stand here, as we share the word of God together, we hear all these cars outside of tent going about their business. So many people not paying heed to thee. But it rebukes me in my heart, Father, because I often wonder, am I significant enough as a pillar or altar in the midst of Egypt pointing people to our Savior? Oh, Lord, thank you that you have saved us. I pray, Lord, that you would help us to demonstrate Christ, demonstrate his grace and mercy to a fallen world. And the only way that can happen is if we are overcome with your majesty, honor, and beauty. Lord, please show us more of yourself and teach us to pray in Jesus' name.